Turn to our text today. We'll be in the epistle of 1 John, beginning in chapter 1. 1 John, beginning in chapter 1. We are going to observe and discuss one of those doctrines that is essential for salvation today. This is essential for salvation. And I've titled this, Standing at the Intersection of God and Man. You know, while Reed and I were on vacation, the cruise line that we were on uh, offered the Voyagers one of those special dinner shows. I don't know if you're familiar, but the ship had renovated a special chamber just for a particular show. It would seat about 500 people. And uh, during the normal activities of the week, as you would go around the, ch- the ship and, and tour, no one was allowed access to that chamber. In fact, you'd walk by uh, exploring the ship. In order to get there, in there, you would have to have a reservation. And for only $29.99 per head, you could get your spot where you could go into this chamber at the required time and experience the marvels of what they called the illusionarium. Just outside this illusionarium, it was decorated, it was fascinating really, with all kinds of uh, objects that you'd immediately recognize while looking at it as magical paraphernalia. There were things like an old leather straight jacket and chains and handcuffs. I think there was even an old diver's helmet there. And everything that was decorated as you would look from the outside of those chambers made you think that I'm pretty sure Houdini lives in there. Yeah. So every time you pass by, you wanted to discover what is behind those doors. So I'm a chump. And since my ship pass card was directly linked to our credit card account, you know, I got us a couple of those passes, and Rita and I, one evening, got to step inside. And when, when we got inside, it was even more intriguing than the outside. There were lots of old, dark-looking chests and apparatuses and, and implements and gear. You know, this was even more fun than milling around in your grandfather's old wardrobe. You ever done that to go in and look at his old war uniforms and his memorabilia and stuff like that? Until he finally says, hey, get out of there! Well, this was good. This was well done. But in the Illusionarium, it was all magic related. And the entire wait staff was dressed up like that eccentric inventor from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. They had the driving goggles and the leather helmet, you know, and the vest. I'm looking around, really, honestly, I'm looking around, I'm like, this is going to be the best 60 bucks I've ever spent. Well, the show was composed in a manner of a theatrical story where they presented six magicians, one after another, and each would take his turn coming up on the stage with his assistants to perform a unique magical act. But there quickly emerged two problems. Number one... I had seen every one of these magical acts before. I mean, I had seen the woman sawn in half. I had seen where they put the assistant in the box and and then plunged swords through it from every angle. I had seen where uh, the magician is placed into the the cage or or chained to a cage and then just within a few seconds of um, of the cover going around them, just coming back out, that he would now be released and she would be the one chained down when they would take the robe away or 
It was, it was, uh, it was nothing new for me. I'd seen every one of these. The second problem was I knew how every one of these was done. All six of them I knew from history and from looking online over time. Don't do that, by the way, if you don't want to discover what magical tricks, how they're done. Don't look on YouTube. But everything I'd seen before, I knew that everything that they were doing was an illusion. So I was disappointed. I wish I would have had my 60 bucks back by the end. Though as impressive as the decor was, and the presentation was wonderful, it was a disappointment. Well, Satan has been attempting to discredit Christ and Christ's incarnation and make people believe it's been an illusion for centuries. He sent his servants to deceive people. He wants them to think that it isn't genuine. And the reason Satan does this, we will learn today, is because the authenticity of Christ's incarnation is essential to Christian doctrine. It's salvific. That means in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven of your sins, you have to believe in it. And from the beginning, there's been people who've been infiltrating the church in an attempt to cast doubt on Christ's deity and his resurrection, not to mention the incarnation. And they've concocted various explanations to assert, with Christ, everything isn't as meets the eye. Well, in our text today, the Apostle John will fully affirm that everything is exactly as it meets the eye with Jesus Christ. As we learned last Sunday in our sermon, in our opening uh, background of this letter, there was one group that believed the material physical realm was inherently evil. That would be flesh, material possessions, money. Now let's be honest. Think for a second. Is that easy to do? It is, is it easy to slip into the idea that things that are material are sinful? Money, possessions, cars. It's easy to slip into, isn't it? And how about sins committed with the human body? Can some of them be downright disgusting? Well, these people had come to the mistaken conclusion that everything that is material is sinful. Now, this is a different text for a different sermon. But the fact is that God doesn't view all sins as equal either. He doesn't. That's a lie. You don't find that in the Bible that all sins are equal. They are equal in a sense that all sins separate us from God. Any just one sin makes you unholy and unpure and unfit to enter heaven. Every single one of us needs to be forgiven and cleansed. But God doesn't view all sins as equal. In fact, some sins he calls an abomination. Some sins he'll even destroy entire civilizations over. We see that again and again in the text. So stealing someone's pen, though being sinful, isn't as big of an offense to the Lord as some other sins can be. Again, that's a different sermon from a different text. But consequently, people during John's day had come to this incorrect conclusion, everything material characterized sin. So they outright denied that a holy God would have become flesh at all. For these They said that God, Jesus, was only a man and that the Holy Spirit descended upon him 
at his baptism, at his water baptism, that is, for a three-year season of ministry, and then that same Holy Spirit departed him, they would assert, before his crucifixion. And this belief was suggested by a man named Serinthus. That is wrong. It was immediately rejected by the apostles and the early church fathers, and it was universally deemed heretical at the 325 A.D. uh, First Council of Nicaea. That's where we get what you've probably heard of as the Nicene Creed. Another line of thought proposed that Christ never took any physical form at all. He was a phantom, they would say, who just appeared to look like a man. This would be similar to an angel appearing. For these people, there was no virgin birth, there was no bloody scourging, and there was no physical death of Jesus. Now, in correcting these errors, when we look at John here, one very important lesson that you and I can learn from him is that he never goes into great detail explaining what the problem heresy is at hand. He doesn't go spend pages explaining what it is he's battling. Instead, he just confidently announces the truth of God and then lets the chips fall. He declares, this is the way it is. This is the truth. Let no one deceive you otherwise. From time to time, I'll have a a person request a sermon series that would teach us over several Sundays all the false religions of the world and what they believe. Now, there is value in, in understanding what others believe. But the fact is, we have very limited time together, and we don't need to know what all the false religions of the world believe in detail. Um, The apostles spend very little space writing about that. They don't matter. You and I are saved by, not not saved, excuse me, by understanding everything that a Hindu believes. People are saved by the Spirit's conviction that they are a sinner, and that by hearing that God provided a Savior. So I don't invest a lot of time telling you everything Islam believes. It's a false religion that categorically denies that God has a son. What more do you need to know? God, for him to save a Muslim, it's not necessary for us to enter into a respectful dialogue about all these intricacies about what you believe versus what we believe, and in this process, hope to find some tangible common ground where we can enter a dialogue with them. Um, That's the mistake that the liberal churches make. Uh, Nobody ever gets saved through that type of dialogue. Well, you believe that, and we believe this, and can we just come together and hold hands and pray? No, that's not how people get saved. What a Muslim needs to hear, and we need to remember this, is that God sent his son to die for their sins, and that through faith they can be saved. Besides, to be very honest, and this is with many religions, including a lot of nominal Christians in America, most of these Muslims, if you see a woman or or have the opportunity to engage a woman who who will have a headscarf or something that's obviously Muslim, she usually doesn't know exactly what they believe anyhow. What she needs to know is God's had mercy that he has sent his son to die for her sins. What we need to do is proclaim biblical truth. So not to belabor this further, Uh, Though John confronts false doctrine, he doesn't do so by stapling on a 28-page letter of what Serenthus believed. Instead, what does he do? 
Look with me at verse 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our own eyes, we, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John begins with this phrase, What was from the beginning? Now some com- commentators believe this phrase is meant to indicate from the beginning of time. Or the Genesis. They, they believe it's, it is there to defend the eternality of Christ. Uh, that's not a horrible interpretation. Um, they would view this prologue, this, this entry into this letter, as a parallel to what we see in the opening of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that view has some merit. But there's another view... The other believes, in this context, that this statement, what was from the beginning, points back to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and the onset of the proclamation of the gospel message. That's probably the better explanation. And I'll tell you why I think so. Um, That is because this sentence, as a progressive, immediately after this phrase, John advances to describe the characteristics of what the apostles witnessed from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. I.e., in in verse 1, you will see, they audibly heard from Jesus. They visibly saw the Christ. And most importantly, was that they physically touched Him from the beginning of His earthly ministry. In this opening phrase, John insists that what the apostles have always taught about Jesus is substantiated by physical reality. Heard. Seen. Touched. So John affirms these declarations are not any kind of illusion. And they don't originate like the, like the doctrines of the false teachers do through speculation, hearsay, and fabricated fables. Jesus Christ is an indisputable physical reality. These apostles walked with him. And here the writer also flashes, at the same time, his apostolic credential. Uh, Using the word we, the author asserts that he was a member of a privileged group. Look closely. We were there at the beginning. We heard. We saw. We touched him. There's no doubt that John is denoting Christ as you get further into his letter. Jesus is the one who's being described here as the word of life. This is why most of your Bibles will capitalize that phrase, word of life. Most versions will do that. It represents Christ. John says, we have touched him. You and I could be, could be drawn, we could be sucked into the scene that we find in John chapter 20 where the disciple Thomas doubts the physical reality of the resurrection. You remember that? And Thomas states in John 20, verse 25, Unless I put my finger into the place of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, Thomas says, I will not believe. And do you recall Thomas's reply after Jesus appeared? And, and invited Thomas to say, Touch my wounds. Jesus commanded Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. 
And the text says that Thomas cried out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. You can see the incarnation right there. Fingers physically touching the very wounds of Jesus Christ. And then Thomas's declaration that you are my Lord and you are my God. Flesh along with God. This is the consistent apostolic testimony from the very beginning. Jesus is both God and man. He's known as the God-man. The Apostle Paul writes concerning Jesus in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We also know from reading the book of Acts, looking at the background of this author, that Christ ascended, as, as we look at Acts, to heaven is, and is seated now at the right hand of God. Is that right? That's right. So anyone who had physically touched Jesus had to have been in this privileged group before his ascension, correct? And since this, this writer also claims to have been with Jesus from the beginning to the ascension, touching him, how many potential authors could this letter include? I'll just do the math for you. On the outside, probably 13. Remember after Christ's ascension, and this is minus Judas Iscariot, remember, because he had hung himself and died. The disciples, the 11 of them, the remaining, are in the upper room. And Peter declared from Scripture it was necessary to replace Judas. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, Peter said, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who, would have, accompanied, who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day Jesus was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Peter declared there had to be another witness to take Judas's place that was present again, what, from the beginning and was there before the ascension. That passage, if you remember, how many men did they find? Could they identify that could fill that bill. Two. Two were there at the beginning until the ascension. And the, and the text says that, it's, that they put forward two men, Joseph, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Those were the two that had been there at the baptism of John the Baptist all the way until the ascension. So they could have physically touched him and had he been there from the beginning. So without question, this letter claims to be apostolic in origin. We were there. We were with him. We were there at the beginning. And, and we know from last week that there are so many other evidences and external evidences that point to John the Apostle as being the writer of this letter. No one's been able to refute that. And in the next verse, John then continues in describing this, this word of life that we see here. Look at verse 2. He says, and that life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now here we actually do observe the eternality of Christ. Jesus exemplifies eternal life. Later in this same letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, we read, he who has the Son has the life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life, right? So amplifying Christ's eternality, Scripture assures us that that God the Son is the source of eternal life. And Jesus being the source of eternal life is demonstrated, we find, in two ways. Uh, He's the agent of creation. He is the one who created everything. As a member of the triune Godhead, Jesus is recognized as the source of all life. He's to be worshipped. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, get this, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, meaning apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus, He's clearly not a created being like the angels were. He's not a created being, because all things that were created came into being through Him. How much is there that exists other than God that came, that came into being without Jesus? Zero. Zero. He created everything. He is the Creator God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, that means the old prophetic letters, Old Testament, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also God made the world. Jesus was the source of the world. John chapter 1 verse 10, it says, The world was made through Him. Finally, Colossians 1.15, speaking again of Jesus. We need to understand His deity here. If He's eternal, He had to be with God from the beginning. Colossians 1.15, of Jesus it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent and sovereign over all creation. Why is He the sovereign over all creation? It goes on to say, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. There's no way with Scripture to wiggle out of this. Jesus Christ is the Creator God. He is a member of the triune Godhead that was responsible for creation to spring forth life. He's not just a man. He's a creator. He's our creator. And in this sense, he's a source of all biological life. That was made so that throughout eternity, as redemption occurs, as Christ returns, all life is in debt to him. All debt owes their origin to Him. And through eternity, as we enter into heaven, whether we are raptured with the church or whether we die and and open our eyes and see Him there, throughout eternity, we are going to worship Jesus Christ as a Creator. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, again, this is a picture of Christ as He's seated on His eternal throne. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. That reminds you of Doubting Thomas, doesn't it? My Lord and my God. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. 
Jesus is the creator. So he's not just some man. He lived and taught some moral lessons on how to love your neighbor a little bit better. No. He is all that, but he's the source of all life. Our text calls him what? The word of life. But Jesus is the source of life in, in a second manner as well. This is demonstrated through redemption and the resurrection. Uh, this is his substitutionary atonement, his crucif- crucifixion on our behalf. You know, Jesus conquered sin and death. He went into the grave and he came out of the grave. He rose in victory and, and that made eternal life accessible. Jesus Christ made eternal life available to us, accessible to the sinner. And Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death is impo- has no power over Christ. And for those who put their faith in him, death has no power over you. This is why Jesus says in 11, John eleven twenty five, I am the re- resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's why Paul didn't, didn't fear persecution. That's why the apostles weren't afraid of dying. There's no fear in death. The Apostle Paul wrote, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Answer is, there is none. There is no sting in death. Christ's victory on our behalf is eternal life. He is the life. And eternal life in verse 2 of our text in, in 1 John chapter 1 is made manifest, it says. It appeared to the apostles. And that's a fascinating word, be made manifest. It was used in the biblical era to describe something that had been previously invisible that had now become visible. Again, this signifies that Jesus existed long before he ever became a manifest in the, in the virgin birth. He is eternal. Now, I won't go on and, and become more redundant, but we've really actually, when you read the Bible barely scratched the surface about the eternality of Jesus Christ and about uh, his humanity. Certainly it was within the virgin's womb where the Holy Spirit conceived Christ and the Holy Spirit knit together human DNA with the divine nature of God. This documents the historical intersection of God and man. Standing right there, at that point, is the person of Jesus Christ. And, and as, as magnificent, as, as edifying as the incarnation is, and as, as essential as it is to the substitutionary atonement, flesh had to redeem flesh. Sinful flesh had to be paid for. So there had to be flesh that conquered what we were not able to conquer. There had to be a physical substitution but this, this passage that we're looking at proceeds in suggesting that this intersection of God and man in the, carna- in the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not the only place that God and man intersect. No, in response to those who would discredit this incarnation, 
that, that Jesus really didn't live, that he really wasn't flesh, John the Apostle affirms that the most critical facet of this doctrine in this passage, it's a prerequisite to Christian fellowship. It has to be present in order to have fellowship. And I'm not talking about the type of fellowship where we run down to Frank's Diner, you know, and have something to eat. We're talking about the fellowship in the church. The Apostle John makes acceptance of the incarnation a condition of this fellowship. In other words, this incarnation is what is regarded throughout Christian history and through the apostles as a cardinal Christian doctrine. You must accept it. Uh, it's, it's a requirement of salvation. You can't be a Christian. You can't be saved. You can't be cleansed from your sinly, sinful flesh without it. You have no fellowship with God. You have no fellowship with the apostles. The text says you have no fellowship with Christ's church without it. If you reject the incarnation, you dwell in darkness. Look at verse 3. John says, what we, again, the apostles are in view here, what we, the apostles, have seen and heard, we, again, the apostles, proclaim to you also, so that, notice, so, so that designates a condition, so that you too may have fellowship with us, the apostles. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, He's defending his apostolic credential again and all of the apostles. Our fellowship, the apostles' fellowship, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, the apostles say, so that our joy may be made complete. So we must come into the light and join the apostles in this essential Christian truth in order to join them with the fellowship of the Father and with the Son. There's no fellowship without it. So you might be asking yourself this question, well, um, is God becoming human flesh really all that important? The fact is, it is. Not believing so is a deal breaker. And we'll discover further why uh, the reasons are uh, as we look closer at Christ's substitution on our behalf, in the future as we progress through this book. But turn with me just for a moment. Turn with me to 1 John, just a couple pages over chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first three verses there. And we will answer this question. Are the cults who deny the incarnation really that dangerous? Or are they harmless? 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. If you aren't familiar um, with what distinguishes a cult from a false religion. What, typi- what typifies a false religion is that it makes no claims to Christianity. It doesn't have its origins. It doesn't claim to have its origins in Christianity. That'd be like Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. They don't claim to be Christian in any sense. A cult, by comparison, distorts Christianity by twisting biblical Christian theology, twisting the Bible to a point that it rejects an essential cardinal doctrine. You get the point? They distort it so that the essential doctrines, Jesus is God who became man, we can't earn 
salvation through works. These are the type of cardinal doctrines. And so that's what a cult does. And here's where a modern application arrives today in 1 John chapter 4. It says, Beloved, John is writing, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Get this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, meaning coming in the flesh, is not from God. It is the spirit of what? The Antichrist. It is demonic. Here's where people get tripped up. And it's easy to come to this passage and, and just read these three verses without considering the, the intent of the whole letter of John here. And you just come to these three verses and uh, we might run into Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses on the, on the street corner or other cults as well that might tell you that yes, they believe that Jesus came in the flesh. They will say that. People think, oh, okay, they pass the test. No, they don't. When they say that Jesus came in the flesh, as far as the Apostle John is speaking here in this letter, they simply acknowledge that a man was born, like you and I are born, and his name was Jesus and he had a fleshly body. That's all they're saying. Um, They'll acknowledge that the person Jesus physically existed. But that alone doesn't pass the sniff test. They don't mean what John means here. That Jesus is eternally God who existed with God from before any creation and through whom God created the entire world. This same Jesus who left his heavenly abode and then became manifested in human flesh. Jehovah's Witnesses actually teach that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Uh, And that he is the highest created of all beings. He's a created being in their theology. He's not God the creator. And Jesus is not God who became human flesh. See the problem? That's a deal breaker. Mormons, on the other hand, and, and God love them, nice people. But their doctrine's wrong. Mormons, on the other hand, get this. They believe that God the Father was not always God. But He was a man who had a tangible body of bone and flesh like you and I do, who became God through righteous living. Yeah. Brigham Young, he actually taught that that this God the Father was Adam. That's right. Regardless of their official doctrine, or in their official doctrine... This is Mormon doctrine now. Jesus was born a man when God the Father had intercourse with Mary the Virgin. And then through righteous living, Jesus became a God. In fact, through righteous living, they say that every single one of us here can become a God. In their doctrine, God never becomes man. Instead, like so many other cults profess, man becomes God. You'll never hear them say that on their cute commercials, will you? But that's a fact. They are not 
Christian. So both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others deny the biblical incarnation. Uh, Where do they originate? Look at your text. They are not from God. They both, both of these believe in good works. They believe that's the path to salvation, not the blood of Christ. They're not salvific. They cannot provide eternal life. And and that's why we don't share potlucks with them on the 4th of July afternoon. We don't go to their church and our church and say, hey, let's get together and dialogue and talk. We can be nice to them. We have members of them, some in our families. We can be respectful witnessing to them. But we aren't one church. They are as, I wrote, I wrote here in my notes at the end, yes, they are as dangerous as your grandma told you. Every one of us was told about that. Be careful. Yes. Um, closing with our topic about this intersection of, of God and man, um, we can be very thankful, very thankful that God and man not only intersect at the physical embodiment of Jesus Christ, No, uh, we also intersect God in Christ's spiritual body. That is the church. The term uh, for fellowship in chapter 1, if you're back there, and we're almost done. But if you want to flip back to chapter 1, we won't go anywhere else from there. In verse 3, we have this celebrated Greek word for fellowship. It's called koinonia. You might have heard it from time to time. Your Bible actually might translate that as communion. Does anybody have that in their Bible? Communion or fellowship? It says, We experience fellowship with God and with His apostles and with one another as God intersects fallen man through the church. Though we're all sinners, guilty, alienated from God, destined for wrath, Jesus paid our debt so that we could be brought into Communion, brought into fellowship with God and with one another. And at this point, I'm going to ask that the the men will come forward where we will share communion, the Lord's Supper. And uh, they'll come forward and we'll celebrate that through our fellowship. That God has given us the the ceremony of of the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, so that we can, can share our fellowship with one another spiritually. John tells us in verse 4 that our being in communion with God makes our joy complete, right? I mean, praise God, we're no longer destined for hell. Praise God, our sins are forgiven. We can come in together and worship together. Sins are forgiven, every single last one. And now because God has forgiven us, because He's paid our debt in the flesh, we can forgive one another. Because we know the struggle that it is. That's why we have fellowship. That's why we come together and celebrate and break the bread together. Um, There exists no fellowship that is not founded on authentic, genuine, apostolic testimony. That is the scriptures. The church itself cannot be removed from the foundation of the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. We were alienated from God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints, the holy ones of God. That's what we are. And you are of God's household, His family, having been built on what? On the foundation of the apostles 
and the prophets, the prophetic letters. It says, Christ Jesus himself, it continues, being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, meaning the church, uh, is being fit together. It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord, it says, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God's Spirit. That's the type of dwelling and building we're talking about. It's built on the apostles, and we come together in God's Spirit. So as we come together today, uh, just as Jesus was physically present with the apostles, we today have a physical presence of Jesus Christ through his body. And though Jesus has ascended, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father until he comes again. The church, Christ's church, right here today, is where Jesus Christ can be heard, where he can be seen, and where he can be touched. The communion of the saints is where the vertical of God meets the horizontal of man. Well, today, if you believe that Christ died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, that it was God who became man and redeemed us, we invite you to join us in celebrating the Lord's Supper to praise Jesus Christ together.